Good morning, church. Good to be with you. I'll be reading out of John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or what I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where am I going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am in he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do these things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. God, our Father, we truly do thank you for gathering us together today as a church. The Lord, be with Eric as he delivers a message, and may we prepare ourselves to, with open ears to hear what he says. In your son's name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, I am grateful to be here this morning. NETS aims to train and send gospel men throughout New England, and we're praying that God would use that gospel to revive New England. And, and so we're thrilled that Pastor Aaron is here doing a good gospel work. I've been 
pleased to get to know Aaron, who is a good gospel man. And so for me to be here and to be with you is a blessing and a delight this morning. I've heard about Cornerstone. We've prayed for Cornerstone. It's about time I come and, and meet Cornerstone Church. So thanks for having me this morning. I want to invite you to the Nets Banquet, which is June 3rd, Friday, June 3rd, and there are some invitations in the back that I want to encourage you to help yourself to, and I'm going to stick around afterwards if you have any questions or want to talk to me about Nets. Well, let me ask you a question. What is it about the darkness? What makes darkness so ominous? If you have kids, they have probably at one time or another been afraid of the dark. None of us have had a child come to us during his afternoon quiet time and say, Dad, can you please turn off my lamp and close the shades? I'm afraid of the light. Pretty sure that's never happened. Kids are instinctively scared of the dark. That's when the monster can hide under the bed. My wife even gets unsettled when she feels... Uh, like she's going to bed at night and I'm not at home. If I'm traveling out of town, Shannon struggles to sleep because she can be fearful after dark. She does fine during the day. She's probably glad I'm out of her way. But she doesn't like the dark. She doesn't like the night. Now, why is that? Well, darkness hides, doesn't it? It veils. It cloaks. It conceals. Recall some of your late-night excursions to use the bathroom or to get a glass of water. Ever step on a Lego or some other diabolical toy left on the floor? Ever stub your toe on a table leg or a door jam because you're trying to navigate a dark room? Your feet can testify to the dangers of darkness, can't they? When do troublemakers typically conduct their bad behavior? In broad daylight? No. Not usually. Usually it's at night under the cloak of darkness. They, they hide and lurk after their victims. They sneak about. They act secretly. And they can take advantage of the blindness and confusion that darkness produces. So darkness can be dangerous. And it can be a hiding place for evil. And, and not just evil out there. Not just at night among mischief makers. The real danger of darkness that concerns you this morning is... The darkness of your own heart. The darkness of your sin. That's the hazard. So what should you do? Do you see darkness in your own heart? Can you see the, the threat of sin on your own soul? Can you admit and acknowledge the darkness of your own sin? And if you do recognize the danger of sin, how do you overcome it? Then what do you do? How do you avoid hurting, not your, your feet and your toes, but your eternal soul? Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning answers these questions. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 8. You just heard verses 12 through 30 read in the scripture reading. But I'd like to reread verse 12. So take a look at John 8 verse 12 with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you read verse 12 here, you should connect it with chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. That's what the word again indicates. Jesus is speaking again at the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He said in chapter 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus says, put your faith in me and find thirst-quenching satisfaction for your soul. 
And now in chapter 8, verse 12, he says again, I am the light of the world. It's the next thing he says. Remember, 7, 53 through 8, 11 aren't a part of the original inspired text, just as Pastor Aaron taught last week. So Jesus goes right from living water to the light of the world. Now, what, what might Jesus have in mind as he makes this statement about himself? I am the light of the world. Well, because he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, he's probably pivoting off the rites of that festival, that celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles had both a water-pouring ritual and a lamp-lighting ritual. The water-pouring rite involved a golden pitcher, which was filled with water and paraded through the streets to the temple where it was poured out before the Lord among celebrating and, and singing. And in, it's in this context that Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And the Feast of Tabernacles had a light rite, a lamp lighting rite, which involved the ceremonial lighting of four large candelabras that were located in the court of the women. And Jews would gather during the feast and light torches and they would dance and they'd celebrate throughout the evening. And it's in this context and in this very location that verse 20 will indicate for us that Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. But I think he also has Old Testament texts in mind. I'm convinced he has Old Testament texts in mind when he says, I am the light of the world. You know the creation account in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what was the earth like in Genesis 1 verse 2? Do you remember? The earth was without form and void and darkness. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. Light be, and poof, the darkness was expelled and there was light. John himself told us that this word in Genesis 1 was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In John 1.1, John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Wow, that's Jesus Christ, the one who declares here in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Or think of how God led the Old Testament Israelites out of Egypt and protected them as they entered the wilderness. In Exodus 13, 21, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The Lord was present with Israel in that pillar of fire in order to give the people light. So Israel gives praise to God with songs like Psalm 27 that was a part of our call to worship, which begins, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is light. So when Jesus declares that he is the light of the world, he's saying, I am present with you to give you light and lead you along the way. I am your light and your salvation. I'm the Lord. I am Yahweh. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to be the light of the world. But why was he not received as the light? Why did the world reject him? Why did they hate Jesus and ultimately crucify him? Well, because the world 
is filled with darkness. Sin has made the world dark. And you and I were born into this world, weren't we? We all, apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, are darkness. It's all we know. What does John say at the beginning of his gospel? In chapter 1, he writes this in verses 9 and 10. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's referring to Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. See, the world is dark and blind. It's ignorant of the light. Listen to John 3.19. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people, that's you and me, people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. That's quite a statement, isn't it? If you're paying any attention this morning, that's quite a statement. Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world, but we loved darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. Wow! Listen to Jesus' own words in John 7, 7. Jesus was hated and despised and killed even though he was innocent. Why? Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Its deeds are evil. That's the condition of the world. From the lips of Jesus, our works are evil. The world is shrouded in darkness because of its own sinful deeds. That's the state of the world. That's mankind. That's you and me. God's creatures rebelling against their creator. So, can you feel the glory of Jesus' statement in verse 12? As you hear it, do you taste its sweetness? Can you see its wonder and its delight? This is good news. In a world dark with sin and death, Jesus comes and declares, I am the light of the world. And then he offers this invitation of faith. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So no sinner needs to continue to walk in darkness. Jesus has come and all who follow him will have his light. Darkness will be no more and they will have life. This is great, great gospel news. But the Pharisees and the Jews listening to Jesus don't receive it as good news, do they? How do the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders respond? They challenge Jesus in his truthfulness, don't they? You're bearing witness about yourself, they say. Your testimony is not true. See, the Jewish law required the testimony of two or three witnesses. One witness wouldn't suffice. So these leaders are calling Jesus out in his apparent rogue teaching. But Jesus replies that his testimony is true. After all, he knows where he came from, and he knows where he's going. In other words, he's been with the Father, and he'll return to the Father. He says so much in John 16, 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So Jesus knows what the Pharisees don't know, namely, his heavenly Father. And then in verse 15, Jesus confronts their worldly judgment. He tells the Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
This means that the Pharisees judge by human standards. They, they judge in a worldly way. They discern and make religious assessments right along with a sinful, dark world. There's no light in their judgment. Jesus, on the other hand, does not judge this way. That's what the second half of verse 15 means. It doesn't mean that Jesus never judges. In fact, in the very next verse, and again in verse 26, Jesus makes it plain that he does judge. In fact, he judges them. But here he's simply saying, I don't judge like you do. I don't judge by human standards. And then he helps the Pharisees to see that there are indeed two or more witnesses. There are. Look at verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So not only does Jesus testify, the Father in heaven also testifies. Do you see that? There are two distinct witnesses. The distinct persons of the Godhead are united concerning the truth of Jesus. He indeed is the light of the world. Now in verse 19, the Pharisees begin to challenge Jesus on the nature and the identity of his Father. Don't read verse 19 as a genuine question. The Jewish leaders aren't making a sincere inquiry here into Jesus' teaching. No, this is a snide question. Where is your father, Jesus? You'll see next week as you move through the rest of John 8, this jab sets the table for future insults against Jesus. As the argument escalates, the Jews will cry out, Abraham is our father. We were not born of sexual immorality. They'll accuse Jesus of being the result of Joseph's supposed infidelity with Mary. So this is not a friendly question. The Pharisees are going after Jesus. They hate that he's calling God their father, or his father. And so look at how Jesus responds. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. To know Jesus is to know the God of heaven. To believe in God above demands that you believe in Jesus. If you don't know one, you don't know the other. Anyone in this world who rejects Jesus and doesn't follow him does not know God, despite anything that they might say. In Jesus 10, in John 10, Jesus will say, I and the Father are one. In John 14, Jesus will say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And his response to the Pharisees here in verse 19 is to tell them they don't know God. Can you imagine that? Facing the religious leaders of Israel and saying, you don't know God? No wonder these men get all riled up. In verse 20, John comments on the location where Jesus is teaching. In the ESV, it says he spoke in the treasury. Other translations say where the offerings were put. This is referring to a place in the temple called the Court of the Women. This was where men and women could both come to bring their offerings of money. And this was where the lamp, that lamp-lighting ritual, the Feast of Tabernacles, was held. And despite the rising tension and the clear hostility of the Pharisees, no one yet has arrested Jesus, have they? Because his hour had not yet come. And you've seen this phrase already in the Gospel of John. It's not time for Jesus to go to the cross yet. The officers didn't arrest him last week back in John 7, and no one does it here in John 8 either. Although by the end of the chapter, the Jews will pick up stones because they want to stone Jesus. 
In verse 21, Jesus directly confronts the darkness of the Pharisees and the Jews. He, he, he confronts it. He says, I'm going away. That's a, a reference to the cross and to the subsequent resurrection and ascension. And you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Do you hear that? Where I am going, Jesus says, you cannot come. Jesus is saying it plain, isn't he? He's saying it straight. The Jews will continue to look for him. That is, they'll continue to look for the Messiah. They'll pass up the chance to follow Jesus, and they'll continue to look for the Messiah in vain. But here he is, right in front of them, and they're rejecting him. The light of the world is standing right there, and they're blind. They don't see him. They're blind in their sin and in their unbelief. They're in darkness and, and unable to see because of the hardness of their own hearts. The Jews completely miss what he's saying. And they wonder about where he's planning to go. Back in 735, you might remember, they thought he was maybe going to Greek Gentiles, to the dispersion. Now here in verse 22, they wonder if he's planning to commit suicide. By the way, here's an irony. Jesus wouldn't take his own life. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But he would lay down his life willingly and by his own authority in order to become a sin offering for sinners like you and me. But the Jews miss it. They miss it. And here's why. Verse 23. Jesus explains, you're from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. These unbelieving Pharisees and Jews are of a completely different realm than Jesus. They're a part of the wicked, evil world system here below. Their origin is this dark, godless world. Jesus, on the other hand, is not of this world. He's from above. Do you remember what Jesus required of Nicodemus back in chapter 3? He told Nicodemus, unless one is born from above... Or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Pharisee Nicodemus could only have the darkness and blindness of his sin removed if he was born of God, if he was born from above, only if he was given eyes to see. And Jesus explains in verse 24 why he said that the Jews would die in their sins. They're misidentifying him. They don't know who he is. He says, unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. There's no predicate. In verse 12, there's a predicate. I am the light of the world. In verse 18, there's a predicate. I am the one who bears witness about myself. But in verse 24, there's no predicate. Unless you believe that I am. It's the same in verse 28, if you look down to verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And next week you'll see it in verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. This is a powerful statement by Jesus that he's making about himself. What is he saying when he's saying, I am? Well, listen to Isaiah 43. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy. And here's an example. There's many of these, but listen to Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Yahweh is speaking. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. 
I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. This is the Lord speaking in Isaiah, Yahweh himself. And this statement, along with others throughout Isaiah, are an echo or reflection of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Do you know Exodus 3, 14? This is what Exodus 3 says. Moses said to God, Moses is being called to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And how does God answer Moses? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. And now Jesus looks the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of his day, in the eye and he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Wow. Do you feel the weight of that statement? Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the light of the world. The pillar of fire, as it were, revisiting Israel. Yahweh in their midst to dispel the darkness of their sins. And the Jews don't believe in him. They don't believe in him. They understand what he's saying. They don't miss the point, but they won't follow him. They reject him. Like in verse 19, their question in verse 26 is not a genuine inquiry. They are animated and unhappy with Jesus. You could better understand the tone of the question in verse 19 if you read it. So they said to them, said to him, "Who do you think you are?" That's the tone. In, in that verse. And Jesus replies that he is only saying now what he's been saying all along. And that he's saying it according to the Father's commission and the Father's authority. He's the divine Savior, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And those who follow him, those who truly believe, they will not remain in darkness, but rather will enjoy eternal life. But here's the judgment that Jesus makes in verse 26. Those who reject him and do not receive his words, they remain in the darkness of their sin, and they'll be condemned. The word that Jesus has spoken will judge them on the last day. And the Jews, the Pharisees, remain blind. They remain unbelieving and, and unknowing. But Jesus does say that a time is coming when they will know. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. That's referring to the crucifixion. When John talks about Jesus being lifted up, he's referring to the cross. And everything in this gospel is moving toward the cross. Jesus, the Son of Man, was lifted up on the cross. And I want you to listen to me, brother and sister. Jesus was lifted up for you. He was lifted up on the cross for you. He went to the cross to suffer for you. He died for you. He was made sin and became a sin bearer on your behalf. He stood in your place at the cross as a substitute. Jesus was without sin. He was the innocent and blameless Lamb of God without blemish or without spot of any kind. He was completely light 
and there was no darkness in Jesus at all, yet, yet he was punished and found guilty as a sinner because your sin was imputed to him at the cross. Brother and sister, Jesus' light was extinguished by the darkness of your sin while he hung on the cross. Because of your sin, he was punished and judged. He absorbed the full vent of God's anger against your sin, even though he didn't deserve it, and he died in your place. What love! What sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ gave. What glory, amen? The light of the world was made darkness so that you could have the light of life. He died to rescue you from your sin so you will no longer walk in darkness. I say praise God for that. If you've been united to Jesus Christ by faith, then you've been fully delivered from the darkness of your sin. God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were once darkness, but you're now light in the Lord. You're now children of light, children of the day, no longer of the night or of the darkness. Dear church, you have been wonderfully saved from your sin and transformed. Praise God for his redeeming and transforming work in you. Praise God for his willingness and his ability to rescue you from the darkness and bring you into the light. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, then you're still in your sins. You've never been joined to him by faith, and you're still in darkness. You're guilty before God. You're enslaved to your sin, and you're in danger of eternal judgment. And you have the opportunity now, dear friend, as you hear the gospel proclaimed, to come into the light. Jesus, through my simple words, is inviting you to follow him. He's calling you to come to him, to believe that he's the divine I am who's able to take away your sin. He's calling you to walk in the light as he is in the light, to repent and to turn to him by faith. If you repent of the darkness and confess your sin to him, sin to him he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you don't turn to Jesus, you will remain in your sins. And I'm begging you this morning, don't remain in your sins. If you're outside of Christ, don't remain in your sins. If you reject Jesus and remain unbelieving, you will die there. And if you die in your sins, you'll spend an eternity in a place of outer darkness, a place called hell. Listen to me. You don't want to die in your sins, dear one. You don't. Hell is not a joke. It's not an idea to trifle with. It's a real place where unrepentant sinners will dwell consciously forever, apart from God and in complete isolation. It's a place of loneliness and weeping and torment and suffering, a place of utter darkness, the Bible says. And I don't want you to suffer for your sins. Jesus Christ already suffered and died so that you can be rescued from your sin and brought in to the light. I'm proclaiming the gospel to you that your eyes might be opened, that you might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that you might receive forgiveness of sins and be made righteous before him. 
The same God who said, let there be light, can shine in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He can do it. That's what he loves to do. So come to him today. Have that light. Receive the light of life. Jesus can save you. He can change you. He can give you life and he can make you light. Even the Jews, when they crucified Jesus, the Son of Man, finally recognized him. In his sermon in Acts 2, Peter holds them accountable for crucifying their Messiah. Peter says, Men of Israel, this Jesus you crucified and killed. And how do the, the Jews respond in Acts 2 to Peter's sermon? It says they're cut to the heart by Peter's preaching. It says that they turned to the apostles and said, What shall we do? And about 3,000 souls are added to the church on that wonderful Pentecost day. So Jesus knows here at the end of our text in verses 28 and 29 that the Jews will one day respond. But right now, right now in John 8, there's only Jewish resistance. There's only Jewish unbelief. Now don't stumble over verse 30. Don't let verse 30 confuse you. It says that Jesus was saying all these things and many believed in him. And when you read this, don't jump to a hasty conclusion. At first pass, it sounds like good news, a glimmer of hope, an encouraging turn. It sounds on the surface like the Jews are believing, doesn't it? At least some of them. But to foreshadow a bit about what's to come next week, that's, that's not what's happening. As Aaron continues this chapter next week, it will become very clear that this is not genuine faith. It's false faith. It's spurious faith. It's superficial faith. Some commentators call it shallow faith or fickle faith or even demon faith. It isn't real faith that dispels darkness and transforms sinners into light. This will become very clear by the end of the chapter because the same people who allegedly believe here in verse 30 will try to kill Jesus at the end of the chapter. But you'll have to wait till next week to hear the details of those verses. Or go home and read the rest of chapter 8 this afternoon if you want to. But in the meantime, let me close with an application of this text. How can you apply this text? What can you do in response? Well, first, recognize that when God saves a sinner, he transforms that sinner. Coming to Christ completely changes you, doesn't it? You're given a new righteousness, a new heart, a new nature. You cease being darkness and you become light. You're given the ability to walk in the light, which means you can obey God. His word's no longer burdensome to you, to you. You're no longer enslaved to your sin. You can now renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and you can live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Ephesians 5.8 says it this way, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk in the light. If you're in Christ, then you're now a new creature. You've been made to live in holiness. So finally, and secondly, walk in the light. Don't walk in darkness. And this means you must be honest about your sin. Be forthright about it. Be truthful and frank, not deceptive. You've been greatly transformed by Christ, but you have not yet been made perfect. So you'll sin. And when you do, don't hide it. Don't lie about it. Don't deceive others. Don't deceive yourself. You will be greatly tempted to hide your sin. 
Anytime you sin, you will want to keep it in the dark. Along with sin comes regret and shame and embarrassment and fear. You know exactly what I'm talking about when you, when you sin and how it feels. And when sin is brought into the light, it's exposed. It's fully revealed as ugly and, and heinous and offensive, which in turn exposes you as guilty of that particular sin as an offender. And, and so that, that's difficult to be honest about, isn't it? But you have been called to the light, and as a Christian, you must walk in the light. Sincere faith is honest about sin and regularly confesses both to God and to others. And this isn't easy. It's not easy, but it's necessary. And it's good for your soul. It's vital for your spiritual well-being. Listen to 1 John 1, 6-9. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, both to God and to others, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, some of you are hiding secret sin, and it's threatening your soul. You're being eaten up with guilt. It's keeping you from enjoying God and freely fellowshipping with him, and it's, it's affecting your relationships, maybe with your spouse, maybe with a friend, maybe with the church. As difficult as it may be, you need to come clean about your sin. It needs to be brought into the light because real faith walks in the light. If you're no longer darkness, then you'll live an honest life and you'll confess your sins regularly. So have that hard conversation with your spouse. Talk honestly to your friend or roommate or schedule a time to sit down with Pastor Aaron and share truthfully with him what's going on. I know it isn't easy. I've been there myself, but it's good, and it's right, and it's helpful. There's abundant mercy in the gospel. God has storehouses of grace ready for you, and a church full of saints who will accept you and love you and help you. And maybe others of you aren't hiding major sins, but you could still be more regular in speaking honestly about your sin. You know, I've found... With my wife, Shannon, she can be a great support and a help in, to me in my daily battle against sin, my daily battle to walk in the light. There have been times when I've had to confess major sins to her, and she's been a strong gospel partner for, for me. And even now, I often share with her my struggles and my temptations. When I see sin, I, I talk to her quickly because I want to nip it in the bud. It helps me to never keep things in the dark if I'm regularly going to her. So connect with someone regularly, someone that you trust. Find a Christian you can partner with in the gospel and commit to living in the light. Resolve to walking in the light. If you're following Jesus, the light of the world, then you will not walk in darkness. You have the light of life, and sincere faith will be expressed in an ability to walk in the light. Praise God for his great deliverance on your behalf. You're no longer darkness, Cornerstone. You've been made light. So work together to walk in that light. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to gather this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Thank you for his work on the cross for us. 
his willingness to deliver us from our sin. Thank you for your grace and your power in our lives. We praise you for it. And I pray that you'd help this church to walk in the light just as you are in the light, to be holy as you are holy. Bless Cornerstone. Be with this church. In Jesus' name, amen.